Father, thank you for such a simple and beautiful picture of what binds us together in our faith. Your death for our sake, your return for our glory. We remember that here tonight, Father, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 6. There's an old joke about a pastor whose sermon ran too long on a Sunday, and finally a man in the service just got up and left before the sermon ended. And when he walked outside the church, a bystander said, Oh, has the pastor finished? And the man replied, Oh, yeah, he's finished, but he hadn't stopped talking. And I kind of feel like I was guilty of making that mistake last week in my sermon. So I'm going to give you a little time back today. We're going to look at chapter 6 today, but just the first few verses. And I want to start tonight by remembering how chapter 5, how that dovetails with where we're going now in chapter 6. So in chapter 5, if you remember, Jesus was exposing the Pharisees' wrong teaching about the kingdom. He explained how they taught wrongly about who would enter the kingdom. They taught wrongly about what God's standard was for entering the kingdom. They said they were the standard, and yet Jesus turned around, as you remember, and he says, now the Pharisees are not the correct standard for who gets into heaven. Instead, your standard for how you get into heaven is God himself. God is our standard. That is to say, we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's how we ended chapter 5. That's the standard for getting into the kingdom, and you obtain that by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But it also is the standard for our conduct while we await the kingdom. And that's what leads us into the topic of chapter 6. That is, what is our proper understanding of righteous conduct now as a believer? And just as the Pharisees were known for teaching a false notion of the kingdom, they were also modeling a false way of living out righteousness by their behavior. So what Jesus does in chapter 6 is warns his followers not to follow their example in how they practiced righteousness, just as he asked us not to follow their teaching about righteousness. That's what we're doing in chapter 6. We started last week briefly in chapter 6, verse 1. I'm just going to start there again, just to reset what we're looking at. Look at chapter 6, verse 1 for me. This is an overview, really, of what Jesus is going to address in the whole of the chapter. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He says, beware of how you practice your righteousness before men. Now, as I said last week, by necessity, we are always practicing our righteousness before both men and God. Because generally speaking, there's always somebody watching us, and certainly God sees everything. So, obviously, when, you, when he says we're not to practice our righteousness before men, it's not the problem of people watching us that is the concern. What he says is, that there's a right way and a wrong way to do that, to practice your righteousness before men. And the wrong way is to live out your Christian witness so as to be noticed by men. That is, they're your audience, not God. So to put it simply, it's wrong to pursue the approval of people rather than to pursue the approval of God. And those are mutually exclusive, by the way, because what God approves and what men approve are diametrically opposed and always will be. So Pharisees, as an example, they sought the approval of men. By and large, that's who they were playing to. That's the crowd they were trying to appeal to. And therefore, Jesus said the reward they received was an earthly, man-made reward. In, in the way that they practiced righteousness, they received things like political power. They received earthly wealth. They received worldly praise. And that's what they sought. But in this chapter, Jesus begins by warning us, don't do that. 
Don't follow that example. Instead, you and I need to live with what I always say is eyes for eternity. We need to have eyes for the eternal, which means we have to seek to please God rather than to pursue anything on the basis of how it pleases us or how it pleases others. And we do this because we know God is a rewarder of those who seek him, as we read last week in Hebrews 11. When we live seeking to please God... What that then allows for is opportunity for God to reward us for what he alone sees. That's the equation here. And the things you're going to see from God are things like heavenly authority, heavenly wealth, heavenly praise, things that will come to us in the kingdom. And if that's a new concept for you, don't worry. We are not going to leave it undefined down the road as we go through this chapter. We're really going to explore this in detail, piece at a time, because Jesus gives us six examples in this chapter of how the Pharisees had taught wrongly about practicing righteousness and how they should have been seeing it, how we should have been seeing it. And in each case, he'll talk about reward, and we will have a chance in the course of that to explore this concept more deeply. So, as they taught in chapter 5 wrong things about righteousness, about the oral law, and Jesus corrected each one, similarly, he does that here too. He's going to show us not only what they did wrong, but what the right view should be. And these four examples deal with things that were particularly onerous. These are the, the worst practices of the Pharisees, the things they would have been most notorious for. Specifically, Jesus is going to use examples dealing with, first, the giving to the poor, charity. Secondly, praying. Thirdly, fasting. And then finally, wealth. And in each of those areas, the Pharisees had made a mockery of how they served God in, in each of those cases. So in each case, they had constructed a practice of their own, which was designed to maximize public exposure so as to encourage others to praise them for their practices in these areas. All of it was designed to court that praise. It was a mutual admiration society among the Pharisees. Now, as he did in chapter 5, Jesus is going to give us the correct view of each of these things. So we're going to learn what is the biblical view. Maybe another way to say it is, what's God's perspective on how we give? Or what's God's perspective on praying or fasting or wealth? And today is one of those days where I really love teaching verse by verse. I really love being in that style of teaching and not doing topical study. And here's why. Because I'm constrained by this text. I'm constrained by it. I can't ignore it, and I can't go away from it. I can't add my own thoughts to it. I can't ignore what God has given. I just do what it says. I love that. And the reason I love that is because you can't tell me that I made up what I'm going to talk about today because I had some ulterior motive. No, I didn't. It's on the page, right? And you knew that if I go verse by verse, I'm going to get to it eventually. And by the way, if you haven't looked through the rest of the gospel, there's some other tough topics coming. And I'm going to deal with them when I get there. But I'm also constrained in another way. Because you know the first example, I just mentioned it, it's going to be what? Giving, right? But here's the thing. You're going to be surprised at what I don't cover. Because I know what you're expecting. And when you don't get what you're expecting, the reason why is because that's not what he talks about either. So if Jesus doesn't talk about it, I'm not going to talk about it because that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk about what he talked about, not what I want to talk about. And that's the constraint I'm talking about here. So listen to what he says. Don't start to filter what you're about to hear based on prior experiences with pastors talking about giving. Most of it was nonsense. If it's anything you've seen on TV, it was nonsense. Okay? We're going to look at these examples the way Jesus wants us to look at them. And as we study them... We're going to learn about the problems of the day that Jesus lived, what was going on in Israel. We're going to learn the history. But more importantly, we're going to understand 
how not to make the same mistakes that the Pharisees did and the people of Israel were doing at that time. We're going to get a better understanding of God's standard of service for righteousness lived out. We know what his standard for entry into the kingdom is, perfection. What's his standard? How does he, how does he see righteousness lived out? Because that's the standard we want to use, remember? We want to know what God's standard is and meet that standard. We don't want to meet some earthly one that we made up for ourselves because it makes us feel better. Because that good feeling goes away when you stand before the real judge. So we want to know what God's expectations are. Because just as God's standard for obtaining righteousness was a lot higher than what the Pharisees said it was, well, guess what? God's standard for living it out is also a lot higher than what the Pharisees modeled. And then finally, in each of these examples, Jesus' chief concern is going to be ensuring that we preserve our opportunity for eternal reward. That's his goal, if you will. That's his purpose. I talked briefly on this concept last week, and I told you we're going to develop this more fully as we go through it. But the main point about eternal reward is actually pretty easy to grasp. And here it is. You can either seek your reward here, or you can seek it in heaven. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It's one or the other. And I think most of us, when we finally leave this world and enter into our eternal state, we're going to find that we, we kind of played both sides of the line at different times, right? We all are going to probably have a testimony in which we tried to get some of what this world offers, and then on our better days, we turned our back on that to seek what the eternal world will offer. And none of us did it perfectly, and that's okay. What our goal should be, the reason we come into a building, the reason I preach, the reason we do all that we do, is so that in the course of our earthly life and our walk with Christ, we get better. We move toward maturity so that we finish stronger than we started. So that we have more opportunity tomorrow than we had yesterday. That's the goal in this, okay? So don't beat yourselves up about the past. If that's your problem, if that's your concern, think about the future. That's why you're here. All right. Verse 2, our first example. It says, Jesus says this. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There you go. Jesus' first example on giving. And another term for this in the Bible would be almsgiving, giving alms. That's a specific kind of giving. It means giving to the needs of the poor. And as will be the case for each of these four examples, he begins by denying the Pharisaic way of doing things. And the Pharisees, as you would probably expect, had contrived this outlandish and completely self-serving method of giving and encouraging others to give. And in order to understand what they were doing and what Jesus is referring to here when he talks about trumpets, for example, you first have to understand the, the nominal Jewish practice. That is, what was the norm? What was, what was the normal way in which Jews gave alms? The law of Moses stipulated to Israel that they would give tithes. A tithe is a 10% of something. They would give tithes for a variety of reasons. Uh, They were called at first to give tithes for the care of the priests. The priests got their income from tithes. They gave tithes to the upkeep of the temple. The temple itself and all its operations needed funds. That came from tithing. They tithed to fund the annual feasts. Those big celebrations that took place in the year. Where would all the money come from for all the food and all the feasting and all that? Well, that was from tithing. They were also told to tithe for the taking care of the needs of the poor. Uh, And in general, they were told to have a charitable attitude toward anyone who was in need. In fact, in Deuteronomy 15, 
verse 7, they're told this. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his needs in whatever he lacks. Now you may notice the word lend in that command, right? It wasn't necessarily the case that we always had to give. We just had to be generous in meeting needs one way or another. That was the, the sense, that was the heart of what God wanted for his people. But the Lord also commanded Israel to tithe, specifically, into a general fund for the welfare of the needy, for the most vulnerable in Jewish society. He says this in Deuteronomy 26, 12. He says, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. One of the myths of, of, of the church in terms of this topic of tithing is that we are to tithe. There's nothing in the New Testament that says we have to tithe. Christians do not have to tithe. Tithing is an Old Testament biblical requirement for Israel out of the law. And the biggest misnomer is that it's 10%. Do you know how much Jews had to tithe? Close to 30, between 20 and 30%, because they had multiple tithes for different purposes. So the irony is if someone tells you you're supposed to tithe because Israel tithe, what they're saying is you've got to give close to 25 to 30% of your income. I mean, the whole thing has been completely distorted by people who just want your money. The truth of what the Bible says for the New Testament giver is something very different, which we'll talk about later when we get there, because that's not the topic today. All right, so that was the background on what the law required. Now let's talk about the history for a second. Prior to entering the Babylonian captivity, which happened about 600 B.C., the Jewish people did not have synagogues. They didn't have local houses of worship. All tithing was directed toward the tabernacle or temple. That's it. Nothing would preclude an individual Jew from providing charity to a neighbor, and the law basically demanded as much, but all institutional giving went to the temple. That was the only place in which you gave your funds. So a Jew would literally physically bring their tithe into the temple and deposit it in the temple. Ancient writers report that there were 13 large chests in the compound of the temple, and money was collected in those large chests. Near the end of, of Jesus' ministry, the last week he's alive, he's in the temple. And if you remember the story, this is much later in the Gospels, but he's in the, the compound with his disciples, and they're watching the activity, and there's a moment in there where this happens. Jesus makes this observation in Luke 21.1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they have put out of their surplus into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Well, that treasury that he mentions in that passage are those 13 chests I'm talking about that were situated in the public compound of the temple. All right, so that's how giving was done generally. But during Israel's captivity in Babylon, when they were away from the land and when their temple was destroyed, they came up with this practice of meeting in local congregations that were called synagogues or gatherings. And together they began to bring their tithes to those same gatherings, because where else were they going to take them at that point? There was no temple. So the synagogue arose, and the idea of giving money to the synagogue became a custom. Now, 70 years later, the nation was finally released from captivity, and under Zerubbabel, they came back into the land, and they set up a temple again. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, if you know your Old Testament history. And so now you have Israel back in the land with a new temple. But they continued this practice of local synagogues. They didn't stop that. And, of course, that also meant 
that in addition to the temple now, you had this local institution, your local neighborhood synagogue, that was looking for giving as well. And now they're in competition with the temple. And you know what happens when you have competition, right? Competition breeds innovation. It's just natural. We want to compete. So the local rabbinical authorities began looking for ways to encourage giving to that local treasury as well as to the temple. And at some point along the way, the Pharisees had come upon this brilliant idea of announcing large donations being made to the synagogue with trumpets in the streets. With trumpets in the streets. So the trumpeting would begin in the streets as this donor was preparing to walk to the synagogue with their donation and make their donation. And this would also happen in the temple, by the way. And at its worst, the Pharisees would escort this giver with his alms in a procession to the synagogue with trumpets blowing and so on. Uh, And the scheme was mutually beneficial for both the Pharisees and for the giver. Now, obviously for the giver, the trumpets just garnered attention from the local community, right? It stroked the ego, puffed up the pride. Hey, look at me. I mean, in several ways, not just the fact that I'm being generous, but I'm rich. <laughs> I have enough money to warrant a trumpet, right? And for the, uh, there, there was a guy who once wrote that these donors weren't giving their money to the poor. They were buying attention for themselves. And that's a good way to look at it. But that scheme also benefited the Pharisees or the rabbis because by lavishing that public praise on every giver, who met some minimum criteria, whatever that was, they created a powerful incentive for everyone else to be a giver as well. The goal went merely beyond just improving the balance sheet of the, of the synagogue, by the way, because we know the Pharisees were corrupt men. Jesus says they were lovers of money elsewhere in the Gospels. And so that means they had their hand in the cookie jar. So anything that brought money into the treasury also benefited them personally. They would be gaining money from this transaction. You know, this is kind of an interesting way of looking at how we incentivize giving, right? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that could actually work. So I have this, and I was going to actually do this, and then I tested it in my house, and I still can't hear out of this ear. So I'm not going to do it in the, in the building. I'm just going to have one of the ushers stand at the offering box in the back with this. Now, for a minimum of $500, we'll, we'll give a short blast. No, I'm just going to... Now, see, you're laughing at this. That's how they did it. Now, what would you think if you watched this happening? Right? Wouldn't you be rolling your eyes? Oh, God. There's, there's Solomon again. Boy, he loves the trumpets, doesn't he, honey? Every time he wants to give his money, here comes the trumpets, you know? That's how they did things. In verse 2, Jesus says what God thinks of people who give poor, to the poor in this way. He calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite comes from a root word in Greek that means to act on a stage. And I think that's a really good way to understand hypocrisy. It's pretending to be something you're not, like an actor pretends when they get up on the stage. And the giver's hypocrisy in this case was in pretending to be a humble benefactor seeking to improve the the plight of the poor and the needy, when in reality they only had selfish interests. The only reason they were involved at all was to seek that praise, to improve their their standing within the community, and to get maximum attention and maximum credit for their donation. Secondly, that person was also courting the approval of the Pharisees, because there was a bit of relationship building there that was going on as well. You know, rabbis and Pharisees had a lot of power, more than just as a religious member of society, because remember, the law of Israel was a religious law. 
So a Pharisee was more than just your priest or your pastor or whatever. He was the local magistrate. He decided if you could get a divorce or not. He decided whether you were guilty of crimes under the law or not. So if you were ingratiating yourself to him by making large donations and getting your little trumpet, then you built a relationship that could pay off later should you need to skirt some law and stay out of trouble. We call it political donations today. In their day, it was done this way. Now, the Pharisees are also hypocrites here. And their hypocrisy was in pretending to be encouraging everyone to obey God's commandment to give to the poor. But in reality, they were manipulating people into giving. And they did it for their own enrichment. The trumpets didn't increase public concern for the poor. I mean, you can see this, right? Just because Joe Blow walks down, I didn't mean a pun there, but just because so-and-so walks down and you're blowing trumpets for them, doesn't make the rest of us go, oh, honey, we really should be having a bigger heart for the poor, shouldn't we? Look at him. He has such a great heart for the poor. Nobody was fooled. Everybody understood what was going on. Complete joke. All it did was pressure everyone to give money or be shamed when your donation came with the absence of trumpets. You know, I mean, the silence spoke as much as the trumpets did, really. It was extortion. It was a big extortion scheme. And by the way, if you're not paying attention... That's exactly what's going on in the church right now. I'm not going to get on my soapbox as much as I dearly want to, but I'm pretty sure I'm preaching to the choir on this one. But all the nonsense that's in the church everywhere you see today focused on money, on this ridiculous claim that if you give money, you get money. Who gets rich in that scheme? It's not you, all right? But they tell you that's how God operates. If you've ever bought into that, even one iota, you need to back up big time from Satan's latest lie because that is not in the Bible. It's the contrary to what the Bible says. And it's being used by men whose hearts are are intended to manipulate the sheep into making the wolves rich. We know that, right? Well, it didn't start here. We're not inventing anything. The Pharisees were masters of the game long before we came along. Because of their hypocrisy, though, Jesus says each of these groups, the givers and the Pharisees who encourage this nonsense, both of them, he says, have received their reward in full. The reward he's speaking about here are those earthly gains that each group obtained through this unholy alliance. So the Pharisees, what did they get? Well, they got the money that they dearly wanted in the treasury. And what the giver got was all that public attention that they bought, basically, with their donation. Jesus says, both of you guys, you should consider yourselves fully rewarded for your behavior because there ain't going to be any additional reward for you in heaven, even should you make it there. That's God's economy. Now, if you and I wanted to play devil's advocate, for, that's always a terrible thing to say in church, isn't it? But you know the phrase. If we wanted to play devil's advocate for a moment, we might say this. We might say, well, wait a minute. There was a donation made. I mean, the poor are benefiting from this. You know, you're encouraging giving. I know it's got this bad side to it, but at least there's money showing up. Right, Steve? What's the big deal? All right, well, think back to chapter 5 for a minute, what we learned in chapter 5. We learned in chapter 5 that you don't have to commit murder in order to be in violation of the Sixth Commandment. Right, And you don't have to cheat on your spouse to be in violation of the seventh commandment. Jesus said, if you just hate, or if you just have lust in your heart, then when you face the Lord on your judgment day, you are going to be found equally guilty of those commandments. You see, it's, it's bigger than just the action. What we learned was, God cares both about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And as the Pharisees proved in the last chapter, it is possible to keep the letter of the law and still violate the spirit of it. And if you violate the spirit of God's law, then any technical compliance with the letter of the law that you may be able to point to counts for nothing. 
It counts for nothing if you're still violating the Spirit. In fact, it goes this far, friends. God cares so much about the Spirit of what He says over the literal, let's say, over the letter of it, that He is even willing to overlook violations of the letter of the law if it's necessary in order to keep the Spirit of the law. And one of the best examples I'll tell you to go look at, you can do this as homework, is go look at what David does in 1 Samuel 21 when he eats the bread that was consecrated for the priests only. And the priests let him do it against the rules of the law because a higher goal was in in order, that there was a spirit of the law that needed him to eat that was more important than the letter of the law about who the bread was for. That's how much God cares about the spirit of the law. So now you're learning that the same principle that we saw in chapter 5 applies when it comes to how you're going to be rewarded for your service to God. That is to say, even if you do the, quote, right thing, if you do it for the wrong reasons, you don't get credit. You see how it's a higher standard than we might have thought? God cares as much, or we could say even more, about our motives than he does about our actions. So in the case of the giver, who made these large donations to the poor, they did it to receive public praise, and so they garnered nothing with God. And why not? Because in their hearts, they were motivated by selfish desires rather than any sincere desire to obey God's command or to help the poor. And if you and I look at that and we say, well, what's the difference? Then you're not getting it. You're not understanding how God views things. God cares about what's in here. That's what matters. That's why we always talk about the heart. You know, the thing is, you and I both know the heart is not the thinking organ in the body, don't we? It's the part that pumps blood. Guess what? God knows that too. I mean, he made it. So why in the language of Scripture does he always talk about in your heart, believe in your heart, the heart wanting this, or the heart wanting... Why does he use that term? Because it's a euphemism for the spirit, for the part of you that is immaterial, that will last forever, that doesn't go to the grave but continues on. That's what he cares about, and that's inside you. What he doesn't care about is how you look outside, because that's, that's, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters only in the sense that it should conform with what is true inside. But it's not the end-all, be-all. It's the inside that matters. In this case, the spiritual view of things. So let's take note. God will not be fooled by our hypocrisy. We can fool everybody on earth, but God is not fooled. And He does not reward selfish motives, even when our actions comply with His commands. You can give all your money away. In fact, you can give every dime you have away, but if you do it all for hypocritical reasons, you'd be better to keep it. You really would. There'd be no benefit in giving it away. You gain nothing for that effort. Jesus says you'll have no reward if you don't do it for the right reasons. Now, as I mentioned before, the reward he's talking about here, of course, is that eternal reward that we await the kingdom to receive. And he's going to talk more about it in this chapter. In fact, he mentions reward seven times in chapter 6. But more importantly than that, he explores the principle in depth as he moves through these examples. And we're going to look at them as we go. I'm not going to try to pile it all into one Saturday night. But let's learn what we've got out of the first example at least. Call it point one. Call it lesson one. Whatever you want. Here it is. Reward in the kingdom is based on more than your actions. Our reward is conditional on maintaining the proper spirit or heart motive behind what we do in serving God. He's ready, he's willing to reward a servant who serves him. He wants to reward us. Remember that time in the Gospels where he says, if you being an evil father know how to give your kids good gifts, well, will not your father in heaven, who's perfect, know how to reward you? I mean, his point is, don't worry about God not knowing how to reward you. He's got that under control. It's an opportunity. He wants to, but he needs a sincere heart to justify it. You and I will put our rewards at risk if we neglect to obey his commands. Yes. 
But we also put them at risk if we pursue our obedience hypocritically. That is, as man-pleasers rather than as God-pleasing. Keeping the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Making sure everyone thinks we're nice and righteous and good and so on. When in fact we know we're not even trying to be. You know, if that's your attitude, you're not getting anywhere with God. You might as well know that now. So how do I prevent this? How do I make sure I'm not falling into this trap? Well, the solution must be to guard that inner part of you that we're talking about. Guard your heart against the temptation to seek your reward early. That is, on earth. Because as you go about serving Christ, you will have to consider your motives. You need to continually inspect your own heart on this matter. And you have to be honest with yourself. That's probably the single biggest challenge. Can you honestly tell yourself when you know you're being hypocritical? A lot of people have become so blind to their own hypocrisy, they don't even see it anymore. They can't tell the difference between sincerity and hypocrisy. They're proud of their humility. They're, they're, they're sincerely doing everything they want because it's what they want, not recognizing the hypocrisy in that. We have to be honest about what we do and why we do it. And when we recognize that we're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, we need to address it. We need to figure that problem out. We have to make sure that our temptations are kept in check. And we don't excuse our hypocrisy in this way, because I've heard this. It's a win-win, right? I give to the poor. God wins. I get some recognition for it. I win. Who cares? Seems like a good deal. Win-win, right? No, no, no. Win, lose. You win now in your own way, but you lose in eternity. And as I said last week, you have no idea what God has prepared. As Paul says, I has not seen all that God has prepared for those he loves. You know, there's this concept that there's something coming far greater than anything we can imagine for ourselves now. And in that way, you can be assured that if you make that trade, you're going to lose out. God gets what he wants with or without our help. The question is, will you leave room for him to reward you? In the case of giving to the poor then, on this specific example, Jesus says, here's what the proper attitude looks like. As you give in this way, you should give in such a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. That's a wonderful turn of phrase, isn't it? In fact, it's, it's kind of made its way now into the culture. You'll hear people using that phrase in a variety of circumstances. And it always has the same meaning. It means to operate in total anonymity. That is, Jesus says that our heart's desire should be to keep our giving completely concealed from public view. Completely concealed. In fact, our giving should be so secretive that it is as if our left hand is totally unaware of what our right hand is doing. That's what he says we should be trying to do. Now, what practically speaking, what that means is that you don't seek public attention for your giving in any way. You don't talk about what you give. Uh, you don't ask for recognition. You don't even expect someone to notice that you're giving. And just because we don't have trumpets at our offering box, that doesn't mean we all don't have our own little ways of getting that same outcome when we want it. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty good at this stuff, actually. It's, it's kind of funny to see it working. The modern church has found its own way to repeat the Pharisees' hypocrisy. For example, have you ever seen plaques hanging inside a church that lists donors for some previous fund drive, you know, thanking them individually for their donations to some fund drive? I mean, is your name listed inside some church somewhere? Or have you ever seen a brochure for a church building campaign and thanking the partners who've made major contributions to help the campaign? Or maybe someone's name on the back of a pew. I've been in churches in the Northeast, old churches in the Northeast or Philadelphia, where you see the names of famous people on the backs of whatever pew they bought. I guess that means they could always sit there. I don't know, but... 
You ever seen that? Or someone's name on the side of a building? God forbid. Or maybe more commonly, how about bragging in idle, everyday conversation? That's probably the one we most likely do. Someone's actually coined a modern term for someone who brags about themselves in the course of some normal conversation, acting as if they're not bragging. They call it a humble brag. If you've ever heard someone say this, they were humble bragging. I need a vacation. I'm exhausted from my two weeks in Hawaii. You see, the, you see how they did that? Or uh, when they say something like, have you noticed how long it takes for large checks to clear your bank account? I'm still waiting for last month's tithe check to come through my account. Oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're doing there. That's a humble brag. One prominent Christian pastor, this is true, he once tweeted to his followers, I'm truly humbled you follow my tweets. God bless all 200,000 of you. Yeah, you see what he did there, right? What was his real purpose in that tweet? So be mindful of pride and ego. They are always poised and ready to steal opportunities for reward. I mean, they come on you when you don't even realize it. And you know what I have found? That tendency is especially likely when you're in the presence of a humble brag who's going on about their own accomplishments. Don't you feel that sense inside you like you've got to compete? Now, they go on and on about all they're doing. You're like, I cleaned my house today. I... Uh, you know, something good happened to me. I've got to compete on this guy. There's a joke that if you're at a cocktail party and there's an astronaut at the party, don't even try. You're, you've lost right there. You can't compete with an astronaut. They win every humble break. That's just human nature. And if you're not aware of it, you can't guard against it. If you don't guard against it, you're going to fall prey to it. So don't compete for public attention, especially in areas like this, in giving. What you want to do instead is can you honestly be content with God's pleasure? Can that be enough? Can it be enough that God saw you and he's content and pleased and prepared to reward you? Can you go to your grave content in that? That's the key. That's the key to preserving, maintaining your eternal reward. Pure motives. And Jesus says this, and this is probably the best insight you're going to get tonight. Jesus says the best way to keep your motives pure is to stay anonymous. Because this is how it works. The moment your check hits the bottom of that box or you click you know, donate online, forget it ever happened. Just drop the thought in your mind. No one ever knows what you did and you'll never talk about it again. Say nothing, expect nothing in return. If someone offers you something in return, don't even accept it. Don't lose your reward. Because if you give in that way, what happens is your flesh is starved. Your flesh has no interest in that transaction because there's no reward available. If you keep it silent, there's no source for reward. Your flesh loses interest in it. It moves on. And when you give secretly, therefore, the only reason you can have in your heart for giving, if you do it secretly, is that you would expect a blessing from the Lord and you have some sincere interest in who's going to benefit. There's nothing else. There is nothing else. And if you're not sincere in your motives, you know what you're going to find yourself doing? You're going to give secretly and soon thereafter you'll start looking for ways to spill the beans. You know, just to let a little of it out. Just to sort of mention that, I've, I've got this checked. Where's the box again? Oh, it's right here. Thank you very much. I'll just put that in this, you know. It, I've seen that kind of stuff. It's all in human nature. But the point is, guard against that. Block it off. Don't let it happen. And what you'll be left with at the end of the day is no motive except pure motives because there's nothing else getting fed. That's what Jesus says you have to do. That's what we should all do. Jesus says the Father will see your giving. He knows your motives. He delights to reward you. Now, notice the contrast between the end of verse 2 and his statement in verse 4. I just want to make sure that you don't think 
that I'm making this up. Look at the contrast. To give in such a way that you receive honor from men means taking your reward now instead of receiving it in heaven. And the point isn't whether you actually receive anything, it's just the fact that you expected something that kills the reward. On the other hand, if you give secretly, understanding that you're forgoing any recognition now, you leave opportunity for eternal reward. It's an either or. And then finally, I would be wrong if I didn't mention that there's a corollary to this principle that's implied by what you see Jesus say. It guides how church leaders, people like me, for example, how we would encourage giving within the body. I joked about the little trumpet thing, obviously, and that's totally wrong. But it, it goes deeper than that. Leaders in the church have to police our own motives, or else we're going to follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees, blowing trumpets, so to speak. And there are going to be times in leadership responsi- with, with the responsibility that leaders bear, there's going to be times that some elders or others in the church may be privy to the giving that goes on from individual members in the church. You know, you have to look at the check and to deposit it. It works that way, right? Nevertheless, we always, as leaders, need to conduct ourselves in such a way that is appropriate despite having this information, which means specifically we don't share that information with anyone, which I hope is an obvious conclusion. That's just gossip. That's indiscretion. But equally important, we got to guard our own conduct so that we never treat anyone differently in this body based on what we know they give. That's the hard part. That means church leaders never show special attention to anyone in this body, knowing that they may give at a higher level. That means we don't offer them to join the elder board because they give a lot of money. You can't buy a seat on the elder board. And it means we don't reserve seats for them here. We don't reserve parking spaces for them outside. We don't give them special invitations to dinner or the ball game. We don't favor them in insider information about major church ongoings. We, we don't put plaques on the wall. We're not going to put their name on But we should not put names on buildings. I mean, you see the instinct there, right? It's, it's inside us at all times, but we've got to cut that off. If we did any of those things, what we do is make it harder for those of you under our care maintaining a proper attitude toward giving because you'll, you'll see what we do for those who give. You'll put two and two together and you'll start to think, well, I guess I need to do the same thing. They favor the rich. We just encourage the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus teaches against here. It's a, a culture of favoritism that James in his letter says is wrong. So if anyone ever sees someone in this church, including me, doing that, just be kind and and loving, but correct us. Because that's not what we want to do. We want to foster a different culture here. Our goal, and let me state plainly, our goal as leaders in this church on this topic or any other is to maximize your potential for eternal reward. That's my goal. When we're all in the kingdom together and I see you walking down the street and you see me, I want you to be able to say to me, because of what you did in ministering to me, Steve, I had a better reward. I was more obedient. And that helped me when I got in front of Christ. That's my goal. I want you to maximize your eternal reward, which is to say, pleasing Christ. That's my goal. As the writer of Hebrews says, Let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may have seemed to come short of it. That's my concern. I don't want anyone in this church to come short of the grace of God in this respect. I want to maximize your reward. And I don't want anyone under our care in this body to arrive in the kingdom on a future day having forfeited their eternal reward because we didn't prepare them for that moment in the right way. And what preparing means is giving you eyes for eternity. Teaching you what Christ said so that you understand His expectations so that you don't err out of ignorance. And then secondly, encouraging you all to obey what you understand in Scripture so that you won't fall from disobedience. And in those two ways preparing you for your judgment. The judgment of the believer, not the judgment for whether you go to heaven. That's based on your faith alone. That's settled on the cross. But the judgment for reward, 
which every believer will stand for, Paul says. As the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 12, 12, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what Jesus is asking us to do in all things. And in the area of giving, give without hypocrisy. That's our goal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for the reminder that your motive, our motives are as much your concern as our actions. And forgive us, Father, for where those two have been divergent in the past. I'm sure in each of our hearts, Father, we're mindful even now of things we may have done or said in the past, which we knew were disingenuous, they were hypocritical, or they were, they were purely intended for our own uh, benefit. They, they were not sincere. They did not come from a heart that wanted to please you. It's just the human nature that we all are saddled with, Father, the sin nature that still is part of our life. We're not excusing it, certainly, but we recognize it is a reality. We're not condemned over it, for that's been addressed already through Christ's death on our behalf. But yet, Father, you ask us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, and that's our goal, to seek for better things. And so, Father, thank you for the direction we've received in your word today. For some, I know this direction is new. It challenges us. It asks new things of us. And for that person in this room, Father, I pray that you are encouraging their heart, encouraging them to know that obedience is in the power of the Spirit. It's in their yielding to what they learn, not in their efforts to comply. It's in a discipline process of a a turning away, not in a pursuit. And I pray that they would turn away from the things that have held them back. They'd be open and ready to listen and obey going forward. And then for others, Father, we have heard these things, we know these things, but we just have yet to live up to them in all cases. And for us, Father, I pray that the message today is just a reminder. That our mind would be attentive to the things of your word, that the world would not intrude, it would not distract, it would not confuse us. But the word, Father, now having been heard, having been preached, would bring us back to where we know we are to be. Our giving is between... Us and you, Father, it's, it's a personal matter, and there is no prescription for when or how much. We just ask, Father, that you'd encourage our hearts in what we do to do it with the right spirit so that we might please you and see our full reward. We pray these things in Jesus' name.